Good evening, everybody. You look outstanding. Uh, yes. Um, I talked last night um, about marveling, and our natural instinct is uh, to, to think about the marvels around us in nature, in waffles, in creation. And tonight, I, I want to bend that a little bit, focus that a little bit, and remember that creation, and indeed marveling, includes human beings, people, tainted, flawed, beautiful human beings. And I begin with a poem by Donald Hall, a poet who lived in New England. I don't know a lot about poetry, but I have to say this past year and a half, I've, I've gone to poetry because I find it holds um, bright sadness, happy sad both, um, in a way that uh, other kinds of writings don't do as well. Um, and uh, this is, this is a, a, I think, a beautiful poem. And I, um, I found it and loved it just when I read it. I just loved what it said. I got even more meaning from it when I um, was looking online to, uh, and found, happened to find a, a clip of the poet reading it and learned that he wrote it sometime after his own wife died of cancer. Uh, actually, Mr. Hall just died this past year himself. But this, the name of this poem is Summer Kitchen. In June's highlight, she stood at the sink with a glass of wine and listened for the bobolink and crushed garlic in late sunshine. I watched her cooking from my chair. She pressed her lips together, reached for kitchenware, and tasted sauce from her fingertips. It's ready now. Come on, she said. You light the candle. We ate and talked and went to bed and slept. It was a miracle. People are marvelous too. Even when we do simple mundane things, even when we make mistakes. Last night, I shared that I feel like I'm relearning how to marvel. And that marveling has, or that relearning, I should say, has many elements, practice, patience, prayer, lots and lots of grace. And tonight, I want to make sure I name one more. People.
others. I need, and I believe we all need, other people. Even though those folks are flawed and broken, even though I and we are flawed and broken. So here's my title for the night. Cracked pots and handmade kites. Given up the liturgical garb, okay? But I still have a text and I still have a song. Can we do this? All right. And I want the chorus. Oh, what's the first one we're singing? Let's go fly every kite up to the high. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up in the atmosphere. Up Let's all go. Fly Thank you. I love how you just have all these songs on instant recall. I, thank you. And thank you, Dana, as well. Now, a word from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, second letter, chapter 4. For it is the God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, that means pay attention. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may, it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also, may also be made visible in our bodies. Please pray with me. God, we thanked you earlier in the day for the gift of our bodies. And we thank you again. And I want to thank you, God, for the incredible glory that can shine through through people. And ask God that you anoint our hearing and my speaking, 
as we reflect on that this evening. Amen. So, so I have learned, I, I'll say it again, I believe we need each other. We need people, flawed as we are. And another word for this is community. And the place where I've learned the, the most about this, I would say, the place where I've been formed in this regard is this church where I've pastored for 28 years, the only church I've pastored. The name is Fourth Presbyterian. It's in South Boston. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, now, I, I think in fairness, I need to tell you how I got to that church, how I got to that call. And I know there are many people in this room who have heard, heard my story. Um, I still feel like I need to give you the scaffolding. I will try to move it along um, and, and get us back to the church. But um, and just so everybody knows, I grew up in Des Moines, born in Kansas, Hutchinson, Kansas, on the other side of the rainbow. And I grew up in Des Moines, and just like Glenn Clark says in his autobiography, Des Moines is a great place to grow up. Um, I, wonderful teachers, wonderful neighbors, wonderful parents, great schools for me, just it, good thing. All that said, I, for whatever reason, um, decided I needed to expand my horizons a bit and went far away for college. Went all the way over to New Jersey, ooh, um, to a fine institution, um, but where I experienced great culture shock. Um, but adjusted to that, uh, ended up loving it, um, and most important, I met Lorraine there, um, who grew up outside of Boston. Um, and at the end of college, I decided I needed to do a year I really wanted to do a, a year of service. A lot of my peers were lining up to apply to investment bank, banking firms and all that kind of stuff. But that just, I just, that wasn't where I was going to go. Um, and ended up through, uh, you know, one of these volunteer service years where you get room and board and 50 bucks a month. Um, uh, I went to uh, Buckhorn, Kentucky and worked for the Buckhorn Children's Center which had been started 100 years ago as an orphanage, but morphed into a place where kids would stay, kind of middle school age kids, um, who couldn't stay at home for one reason or another. Mainly from Eastern Kentucky, from Appalachia, um, from poverty. And they were there, and I did some other things. I worked with the church there. I worked with the nursery school. I worked, helped start a lunch for senior citizens. It was a really meaningful, powerful year for me um, in this little bitty town that had one general store and one post office, um, a church, and the children's center. Um, and it was really in that playground one afternoon when the, my charges, the young people that I spent a lot of time with were off at school and I was just sitting on the swing set by myself that I sensed I need, I need to do ministry. I mean, I had thought about it before, but I really just sensed a clarity. Now, I wasn't sure what that ministry would be. Wasn't sure it would be a church, for sure. A lot of things were interesting to me. But I think the, the pull that was so strong was, was service because I just I, I felt like I could do no other. And I, at that point, had met so many people, so many good people. 
that had such struggle, um, just had to struggle. And I felt like I needed to do something that would be a part of that. Um, now you'd think I'd go to seminary after that, right? Um, but I had already made a promise to go with some college friends to Los Angeles to do a mime troupe. Okay? And, you, and you heard that right, M-I-M-E, mime, okay? And I tell my kids today that once upon a time, mime was really cool, okay? <laughs> Maybe they believe me because they love me, right? But anyway, I, I had been in a college troupe um, at the school in New Jersey, and uh, we had a great time doing it. And at one point, at the very end of my college time, the Princeton Mime Company went over to the Edinburgh Fringe Theater Festival, and we were a smash hit for two weeks. We were on BBC, we were um, in a parade that celebrated the festival, we, were, we got great reviews in the, in the papers that came to our show, and a bunch of papers came to see our show. Um, so, you know, my friends and I thought, we gotta be mimes, this is, this is our future, right? Um, and ended up going to Los Angeles, uh, kind of through some friends of friends connections, and actually lived a couple blocks away from Beverly Hills, which means I went from the hills of Appalachia to almost Beverly Hills, which makes me almost a Beverly Hillbilly, you know, <laughs> almost. Um, now, you know, trying to do, as I think people in this room know, trying to do the arts professionally is a whole nother game from doing it with your excited college troupe. But it was a great, great couple of years in the end. Um, and one of the things, I mean, I, obviously I did not become a professional mime or go on to continue that, but um, uh, we, we had, we had a, a great experience and I worked for a lawyer because I was thinking of law, of law school. Um, and I also got involved with this wonderful church called All People's Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, in South Central Los Angeles, which is low-income area. And this church, oh my gosh, I just, I, I loved it. It was very intentional, founded in the late 40s, about bringing together people of different races and backgrounds and ethnicities. Um, there was a strong commitment to the neighborhood and programs and really gave me a vision for what urban ministry could be. Um, that has fed me to this day. Um, and uh, so anyway, a, a great, 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 great time in Los Angeles. And then, time to come back to this coast, right? You come back um, from Los Angeles and, uh, and went to Harvard Divinity School. And there, there, I really stepped into the process of looking around, so what's my ministry gonna look like? Read lots of books and also did lots of internships and got to the point after that three-year journey to, to where I knew, okay, I, I want to be in a community. I want to be with a congregation. I want to be a pastor. And also, I grew up Presbyterian, and I liked the way we organize things. I liked the way we do things, and I thought, that's what I'm going to be. And I took all the tests. The psychologist said I was good, ready to go, uh, you know, I, I checked all the boxes. I was ready to do this, and I went to my, my home committee. And that's the way we do it in the Presbyterian Church. There's a committee in your presbytery that checks your process and says, okay, you're ready to go. You can look for a church. Um, and I was ready to go back, 
But there was one more wrinkle. Um, and the wrinkle is this. I'm also a musician. And I had a couple of friends who had a band that was doing really well, not only in Boston, but nationally, and had a record contract. And they invited me to sit in with them whenever they were in town. They invited me to record with them. And once I was done with seminary, they wanted me to join them full time and go on the road. And I, I know a bunch of you know this, but just for those of you who are new to the life of Burns, uh, <laughs> the name of the band is Scruffy the Cat. And I therefore went back to my uh, committee and said, you all have been so great. And I really do want to become a Presbyterian pastor. But there's this band. <laughs> um, Kind of, it's not like a chance at playing Major League Baseball, but you might call it double A or triple A. You know, like, I'm not going to get this chance again. And I'm, they've invited me to tour and record for, you know, a year or two, maybe three. Um, and this man, Jack DuPont, I just saw him last week, actually, when I was in Iowa. This man who was very active presbyter, not an ordained minister, but an active member, a layperson in the denomination, and a leader in this committee, he said, Burns, I think you should go play with the band. It will make you a better minister. And he was absolutely right. Every time I see him, I thank him. So I had their blessing, I played. I could probably tell more stories about that, but we played um, and um, had a good run. That was done when it was done, and I looked for a church, and lo and behold, there was a Presbyterian church in Boston and there aren't, that was open, and there aren't that many Presbyterian churches in New England, as you might have noticed. Um, there's, if you go to the Carolinas or other parts of the country, you'll find a lot more. Um, but, but there I went. And my neighborhood is South Boston. Now, this is a New England crowd, sort of. You know Southie, right? Maybe you saw Goodwill Hunting 20 years ago, or you've heard of Whitey Bulger. Uh, maybe you haven't heard, but it's gentrified like crazy in the last several years. Um, but our church is right next to two housing projects. In fact, I should add this story. Back when I graduated in 1988, I graduated from seminary, um, Southie was, had become, in the wake of busing, all white de facto segregated, including the housing projects. And the mayor, Ray Flynn, himself from Southie, and an acquaintance today, saw him a couple of months ago, Ray Flynn ruled that this, is, this has got to change, this has got to be integrated. And there was resistance from some folks in the community, which of course made the news. And when I was preaching at the graduation of my seminary, I saw that news story without having known much about South Boston at all, except what I heard from busing days and what I'm seeing in the news right now. And I use that as an example of what we need to be ready and go and fight, you know? I said this from the security of a pulpit in Harvard Square in the middle of the People's Republic of Cambridge, right? <laughs> and from the safety of that pulpit, a pulpit that Peter Gomes used to call six feet above contradiction, I stuck out my self-righteous finger and pointed towards South Boston saying, there's a demon we all need to be ready to deal with. Well, you know, 
be really careful where you point your finger, right? Because <laughs> that's where God will send you. And that's where God sent me. And that's where God has me 30 years later, okay? So, now, that is the story of me getting to Fourth Presbyterian Church. And as folks have heard me say, it is a beautiful and quirky place. Um, and there are, you know, there, there's so many stories here, and I know you've heard some of them, so I'm going to skip some of those. I will remind you that there was this wonderful guy, may he rest in peace, Bobby. I love Bobby so much. And Bobby actually had a heart, he could not read very, very much, but he loved getting up in the lectern to read as best he could. And so I'll never forget the Christmas Eve he was up there reading this famous passage from Isaiah, one that we often maybe always read on Christmas Eve. And Bobby got up there saying, the people have walked in darkness and they have seen a green light. And, <laughs> and uh, I love Bobby. Um, and then two guys more recently that still show up from time to time, Rocky and Eddie. And I think once in a sermon I quoted Mother Teresa. And afterwards they were, uh, they wanted to let me know, although not as enthusiastically as I might expect, but they wanted to let me know that they had met, they had met Mother Teresa. And I immediately, immediately thought, oh my goodness, did you, did you go to India and volunteer? Because I've met people who have done that. Is that what you did? And then, and then they got kind of sheepish. And they said, no, we didn't go to India. We were both in Walpole Prison and she came and visited us. <laughs> uh, but they agreed with enthusiasm that she was an awesome lady, you know? <laughs> um, and you know this leads, of course, to the story of garlic bread communion. But people in this room have heard that story three, four, five, six times. Some... <laughs> I, uh, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> all right, let me see if I can do the... Okay, I haven't heard it. All right, short, well, can I do it short? Short version, all right, speed, speed version. No, um, we have a wonderful system that takes care of communion now. Let me just say that. <laughs> We're really good, I don't worry about it at all, but back in the day, not necessarily so, right? Um, and this wonderful man named Larry, uh, it was his job that day to go get communion bread at the local store and for whatever reason, he thought it would be wonderful that day um, to get garlic bread. And, and I didn't know this. My colleague who was doing commu celebrating communion with me did not know this. And so we just come up to the table when it's that time in the service and, you know, it smells a little different, a nice smell, a nice smell, and still don't know what's going on um, until... Reverend Murphy, my colleague, kind of lifts it up and breaks the loaf and discovers that there's butter and garlic and salt on her thumb and, like I said, like slathered in the middle of the loaf. 
and we're trying to go. We, we, we go. We're, we're troopers. We roll with it. We go in the flow. And, and in our church, people come down the center aisle to break off pieces of bread. And normally, we let them pick their own. But we're trying to guide them <laughs> to the best place to pick, you know. Or, but, but pretty soon, the word is out. Nah, it's out. You can smell it. Um, and then if you come over to the common cup of grape juice, where the blood, where, where the blood, yeah, where, where, the, where, where you dip the bread, there, there's an oil slick. <laughs> and people start tittering a little bit and laughing, and it's joyful. And this guy named Gary Cosgrove eventually says, hey, pasta, what are you doing trying to wad off vampires? You know? <laughs> so that's the garlic bread story for the umpteenth time. There you go. You got it. But no more fun night garlic stuff, right? It's just we're good. Um, but um, I mean, and the and the and it, and it became poignant because Larry was actually very. Um, oh God, I, uh, Larry was HIV positive, you know, and was doing well for a while, but then got sick. I mean, this is a number of years ago when you you know the life expectancy was not what it might be today, um, and Larry had his own um, had a lot of hardship and struggles and in, in his life but he discovered our church and he just sort of dug into helping us make it beautiful helping us run special events like big parties for the neighborhood making i don't know 300 origami birds and tying them to the ceiling and uh i mean just so many amazing amazing things um, and at his funeral, we, we told stories about that. We told a lot of stories, and, and his family were there, was there. And I didn't really know them. I had met them in his dying days. But, um, and one relative came up after the service, after hearing all these stories, not the garlic bread story, but, um, but, but other stories. And he just said, I mean, he was very grateful, and he said, I we were estranged and I had no idea he was doing so many good things for the world, you know, which is kind of my point. I mean, all kinds of people, God can work through us. Um, and, and Paul was on to that, looking at the people in Corinth who were as flawed and tainted as we are and he had that wonderful image he says we we are clay jars we are earthen vessels with the light of god with the light of christ and he does doesn't come right out and say we're cracked but it doesn't take much imagination especially if you read the rest of the letters to corinth to realize that we are earthen vessels that are cracked and still Christ shines. Um, that is one biblical lens I have on my church and on my experience of community. Um, but there's another one that's, that's, that's come up recently. And now you haven't heard these stories because these are just from the last couple of months. So I'm excited to share them and where this image comes from. Um, I'm going to start with the story. There's a man in our church uh, who is very beloved to us. 
been around a long time. And he is somewhere on the autism spectrum. Lives on his own um, with his sister's assistance from afar and is just very faithful and committed to our community. Um, and he, he, obviously he, he lives on a limited income, disability I, I assume, but lives in some subsidized housing a few blocks away. Um, and he loves that we come up to New Hampshire once a year for our retreat. Not that far from here, it's called Camp Wilmot. And that retreat is always the second weekend of September. And as soon as I announce that it's coming, like early June, we make the announcement it's coming, it will cost $55, which isn't a whole lot for a couple of nights. It's a very rustic facility, but still, we keep it cheap so people can do it, and people take turns cooking meals and all the rest. $55. And my friend, after we make the announcement, a week or two later, he will begin paying in installments by like two or three dollars at a shot. I think when I left a couple weeks ago, he was up to $26. But like every week, he'll give me a few more dollars toward it. And it's kind of, and he keeps track of it, but he also wants me to keep track of it, and I do. Um, and we all just know that this friend is going to be paying by installments all summer, and he will hit 55, I guarantee it, right? Um, and I, I was sharing this story with a, with a friend, with a colleague, a former intern, uh, who's getting ready to move to a church in Chicago. And, and, and he knew this man and loved the story. And he said, you know, I think there's a parable in there somewhere. The kingdom of God is like. And I thought about that. That really, my friend's suggestion stuck with me. And I've decided, yes. This, this is another lens on what I'm learning about community and maybe even the kingdom of God from my friends in my congregation. The kingdom of God is like a man of limited means who so cherished a day of recreating with his congregation that he saved two or three dollars every week to pay for a retreat. The kingdom of God is like celebrating the Lord's feast with the added aroma of garlic and the added sheen of butterfat on grape juice. The kingdom of God is like when a man with a terminal illness gives full days to enliven the church and beautify the garden. I'm learning about the kingdom. Another story from just a couple months ago. A teenage boy, originally from the Dominican Republic. When he was two in the Dominican Republic, he was in a fire and lost two siblings. But his mother managed to get him out, but with a lot of burn, scarring, of course. And through that amazing hospital in Boston, the Shriners Hospital that takes children from all over the world and treats them for free, uh, he got the first of, I think he's told me he's had 57 operations in his 14 years of life. But he is the happiest, most joyful guy. 
And eventually his mom was able to move up. Uh, he lived in the neighborhood. He then, we got to know him in a summer camp that we run every year that's going on as I speak. Um, um, but he moved away to a different neighborhood, but I'm able to swing by and pick him up and bring him to church every week. And he's just a, a beloved, a beloved young man. Um, and he's part of my confirmation class. And a couple months ago, I got a text from him. Oh, no, actually, I think I got a voice message saying, uh, Pastor Burns, I want to give a car to the church. I, I didn't know what this meant, right? Um, and eventually we had a conversation, and what I found out is that he's uh, in a, vo I knew he was in a vocational high school. And this is not his field of study, but there is a program in this school for kids to learn auto mechanics. And some, somebody had donated an old car to that department to fix up and get it running. And then there was a raffle among the student body so somebody would get this fixed up car to take home. And my friend, this boy, won the raffle. But he's not old enough to drive. <laughs> so he decided, here's what he needs to do. He needs to give it to the church. Because my colleague, who works very hard, uh, doesn't own a car. I'm not sure she wants to own a car in Boston, but that's beside the point. And I'm actually not sure we can work out the insurance and everything else. But this boy made my day because he had this car he wanted to give to the church. You know? The kingdom of God is like the boy so excited by a gifted car that he's not old enough to drive that he gives it to the church. One more story from only two weeks ago. We had a healing service, which we do periodically. And that's usually prayer partners up front that people can come up to. And also, uh, or if people choose, and a lot of people opt for this, they can come down the center aisle, and I will give them an anointing and a few words. Now, this particular day, uh, it, was, it, was, it was actually at the end of a hard week for me, and I shared that with them, as I do. I shared it in a sermon. Our, our text for the day was the Good Samaritan. And of course that story gets preached on and addressed so much. We think about it so often. Um, and I, I, I initially thought, oh, I should preach on something else. Go find something else. But I realized that after all these years of thinking about the Samaritan and thinking about the priest and thinking about the Levite and wondering what would I do if I were one of them, I was drawn to a completely different character this time around. I was connecting to that bruised guy on the side of the road, especially that week. And I shared as much. So people lined up to receive their blessings, but a good chunk of them, <laughs> I think, were there because they wanted to check on me, you know? And more than check on me, they wanted to comfort me. And in particular, there's this one woman who's lived in the neighborhood forever. She's one of, you know, she's somebody who has deep, deep roots. Um, and she came up to me, said, Bernsey, how are you? How are you? You know, you're gonna, get, you're gonna get through this, you know? And I was trying to bless her. I was the priest after all, dang it, you know? <laughs> and I am trying to offer her healing words and, and it's like she's gonna say, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Burns, how are you? We love you. We love you. The kingdom of God is like the woman who brushes off a priestly blessing because she is so intent on healing and comforting the priest. So friends, we are earthen vessels, but God does amazing things through people. And let me say it again, we need each other. There's a saying from the Desert Fathers in the fourth century, it's a whole collection of them. Thomas Merton collected them. And there's one that says, if you see a brother trying to climb up a ladder into heaven, knock him down. It is not good to do that alone. People are learning that. I'm, I'm committed. I'm, 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 I'm confident. We're, we're, we're realizing that because so much of our culture, and I don't just mean American, I mean Western globalized even, um, forget how much we need each other and we pay a price for that. There were a bunch of scientific studies released, oh gosh, within the last year, year and a half, showing that things like not just your mental well-being, but your physical health, your, your heart condition, your stressors, all that stuff, your, your life expectancy goes down when you're more alone. It's, it is such a problem in the United Kingdom, in fact, that they have created a new ministry, the Ministry of Loneliness. Because more and more people report being alone. We need each other. Even when we're cracked. One more fourth church story. A few years ago, uh, a man named Gail Hancock was dying. He was a regular in our church. Always sat in the same pew, as people often do, right? Like right over there. And he was, he was dying of cancer, and he was in the hospital, and we mobilized people to go visit. He really wanted to come to church, but the nurses just wouldn't let him. He, physically, he couldn't. So we sent church folk to see him, and um, a number of folk did that. And one man in particular, a man named Mark, uh, who sits, who's just, as, who's just as faithful and is just as faithful as Gail and showing up in church on Sundays, um, would always sit behind Gail. Okay? And Mark went to go visit him. And then he texted me. He said, I said, Pastor, I, I saw Gail. I said, okay, good. He asked me to sing. The only song he knew was Jesus Loves Me. So he sang Jesus Loves Me. And then he sent another text <laughs> that said, it said, if the cancer doesn't kill him, my singing will, you know. <laughs> and in fact, you know, we have some great singers in our church. Mark would not count himself among that. But he's, you know, he's fine. He sings. We all, all God's critters got a place in the choir. Amen? Um, but not a soloist, for sure. Um, and, and Mark and I both kind of wondered, what, what, like, what is that? I know some of the other people who went to visit him, and some of them were soloists. A lot of them were, 
were really good singers, and, and Gail didn't ask them to sing. But for whatever reason, when Mark went there, Gail wanted to hear him sing, any song he could. Just sing me a hymn. Tell me that Jesus loves me. And it kind of hit us, because that was church for Gail, having Mark behind him singing a hymn. That's church. It isn't the soloist. It's Mark in the pew behind me. And this all became very, very real for me when I realized what a cracked pot I was, right? In my grief. Now, mind you, I've been preaching what I've just been preaching <laughs> for years. I've said for a long time, God works through all of us. I mean, you know, that's, that's my thing. And I'm sure I've even said, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cracked just like the rest of you. But there's a part of me in there that didn't know that and maybe thought I wasn't that cracked. But in my grief, I was. Lorraine died in mid-September. and the first week of October, I officiated communion for the first time. And lots of people were helping with worship those weeks. A whole bunch of former interns came back and volunteered to preach. And, you know, plenty of people were ready to step in. But I needed to do it. I said, I got to do this. It was hard. I had to be quiet for a long time and gather myself. But it was so important for me to affirm once again, once again, that God works through this group of people gathered around Jesus at the table when he's breaking bread and saying, my body is broken. God works through these people even though one of them will betray, one of them will deny, a bunch of them will look the other way, one will doubt. Every one of them human, every one of them tainted, every one of them flawed and cracked and still. Christ works through that. I needed to be there and break the bread. And this one had no garlic. No. Tonight, um, well, actually, let me just quote one song. And I have another song that inspired by this song that, that, that I wrote for Lent this year that I think we're going to sing tomorrow. But let me quote Leonard Cohen first. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So the other piece I need to do tonight, I need to honor my dad. You've heard about Lorraine, and I'll talk about Lorraine some more. But I really need to talk about dad because um, his death... Uh, two years ago this month is a big, a big part of my walk as well. It's certainly a big part of that, that summer of 2017, which is just such a notable point in my journey. And I want to tell you about my dad. Um, dad had 89 years. It was a full life, uh, an amazing man. Um, and he, 
he was dying in late June and middle July, and I, it was hard for me to get out there because I was also obviously involved in caring for Lorraine, but at some point I just had to get out there. And we were blessed. We had this opportunity for the all four of us, my three siblings and myself, to be there. And the way I, I pulled this off on short notice was to fly to Minneapolis because I could get a direct flight there that wasn't too crazy expensive and rent a car and drive down. So I'm driving late at night hoping I can get there in time. And I eventually pull into the hospice in Des Moines at about 1.30 in the morning. And dad wakes up and of course dad is heavily medicated and um, you know, not super coherent. But for that moment, he, 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 you know, he opens his eyes and he says, burns. And that was a good thing. That was grace. And I actually had a couple days with him before he died. All of us taking turns being with him. And uh, I want to tell you about the last time we prayed together. My dad loved the uh, liturgical refrain, Alleluia, Amen. The church where I grew up, we would say that after the benediction every week. We do it at fourth too. And in fact, it became the way we would say a table grace at, at meals. Uh, we would say whatever, sometimes, I mean, whatever we would say it would have to end with Alleluia, Amen. And if it was rushed for whatever reason, if nothing else, we would say Alleluia, Amen. Um, it just, it was really important to dad. Um, and it became important to us, of course. And we shared that story with the, the pastor who came and visited dad and said one final prayer. And we were in a circle with dad, who again was kind of out of it, kind of half awake, half not. And the pastor led us in this prayer. And having heard our story, the pastor rightly ended his prayer by saying, Hallelujah, amen. And as soon as he started that, dad, you know, again, woke up and said it with us, you know? And it's the last kind of understandable words I heard from him. And we had, his, um, we had his funeral a week after he passed. And the siblings, uh, my brothers and sister and I all shared stories. We all spoke and we did lots of music because we, we do that in our family, we play a lot. Um, and a lot of our stories and remembrances were riffs on a similar theme. Basically my dad, who was brilliant, was, uh, and was very resourceful, brilliant, resourceful, I've said that, he was also really quirky. Uh, he had grown up in the depression, in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, which was incredibly formative for his life. I grew up with a painting he did in the living room of his image as an eight-year-old of seeing a dust roller come in on the plains of Oklahoma. He grew up in Guyman, Oklahoma. Um, and that, that, that was just a part of his life and therefore indirectly a part of our lives. Anyway, he was resourceful. You know what that means, right? You save money wherever you can. Um, and he was also bright and creative. Um, and so we grew up with some things that I realized later were pretty quirky. Like he cobbled together his own lamp fixtures that I just took for granted until I realized I haven't seen things like this in any other house. <laughs> and I certainly have not seen this on Better Homes and Garden, you know. And um, his landscaping. Uh, <laughs> 
my dad collected Metamucil bottles. So some of you know what Metamucil is? Okay, enough, not, okay, for you young folk, um, it helps you with your digestion and such, okay? <laughs> and such, okay? That's all I'm gonna say. Um, but he never threw them away. And there, maybe you've seen them, that's kind of whitish bottle with green lettering, and he had enough of them that when it came time to do some landscaping in the backyard, and my backyard, our backyard had a slope, he wanted to do some terracing, and he filled up the Metamucil bottles with dirt. And that became our, you know, our terracing, all right? So you with me? I got a homemade lamp fixtures, and I got Metamucil landscaping, okay? So here's the last one that my sister remembered. I had forgotten this. Uh, there was a refrigerator that we had. <laughs> and the door wouldn't shut tight, which is an issue with the refrigerator. You need a shut. And, and most of you might say, well, that's time to get a new refrigerator. But not my dad. He had an old bicycle tire inner tube. Like, think of it as a giant rubber band that he put around the refrigerator. <laughs> My sister hated this. When she wanted ice cream, you had to take up the bicycle in her tube to open it, and then you got to put it back, right? Well, this, this is the way Dad rolled. Did I say that he was brilliant? He was. He was brilliant and creative and quirky and resourceful. And, of course, we told these stories and laughed, and, and we said them with great, great love, and people just knew Dad. This is what he was. Uh, um, but I have to say, in the middle of July, at that funeral, with my wife so sick back in Boston, she couldn't make it to the funeral. We had her on Skype. Um, there was a whole nother level of that quirky resourcefulness that came to mind and just resonated with my heart because my mother di had died 25 years before very suddenly and that was shattering for us and of course shattering for my dad. So in the same way he had jerry-rigged the refrigerator and everything else, he had to jerry-rig a repair of his life. And he had early retirement. He was a journalist for his life, uh, editorial writer. And he transitioned to being a lay pastor. And he went to this little teeny town called Deep River, Iowa, that needed a pastor desperately. And they took him in. And he lived in a trailer home parsonage. And they loved him. And he loved them. And he claims he picked up ventriloquism. He had a puppet raccoon and he would do children's stories. And he believes he was a ventriloquist. I'm not sure if the congregation would agree, but certainly there were noises and puppetry every Sunday, right? And in the same, I mean, he had cobbled together this life of, of meaning and love. And I remembered his quirky resourcefulness and feel like I'd want to be inspired by that myself as I try to cobble together a new life or at least a new chapter. And there's a story um, that I have to share with as I get near the end. Um, and it has to do with Mary Poppins. I learned as a young adult, um, actually, I mean, I was 20s, maybe going on 30 even, 
I learned that the movie Mary Poppins, which I love, it's great music. I'm talking about the first one. Second one is fine, <laughs> but, but really like the first one, you know. Um, and that that movie was a big part of our family's history. Because in 1965, 66, my dad was the publisher and editor of a small town newspaper in Northwest Iowa. And being, it's, he was a, a, a editor and publisher uh, when there were four of us, three of us under the age of five. And he was, he was just working 24-7, you know, just all the time. And, and, and this other paper in Des Moines was offering him a really wonderful job, and it's a wonderful newspaper, and it was more of a nine-to-five job. And he was trying to make the decision, what do I do, what do I do? And then um, the movie Mary Poppins came out. And as you know, that's the story, among other things, of Mr. Banks realizing he really needs to spend more time with his children. And Dad saw that movie and he was convicted and took the job offer. My family moved so that he would have evenings and weekends more available to be with us in 1966, 1967, okay? So I heard this story and it kind of blew me away because one of my very earliest memories from the time we moved from Spencer, Iowa to Des Moines, Iowa, was participating with my dad in a kite contest. A kite contest sponsored by the YMCA, where fathers and sons from this program in 1966, 67, um, would go with your kites and see how, how high they could fly. And dad, of course, with this newfound flexibility, wasn't just going to buy some kite from Walgreens. Um, we made one. We made one in the basement with tissue paper. And that kite was so good that once we flew it, it flew right out of my hands. I mean, it flew. And we chased it. And we finally found it, kind of tattered. And I got some kind of award. I'm not sure if that's because my kite flew so high or because they just, they were really sorry for me when I lost my kites, you know? Um, but that's one of my earliest memories of our new home in Des Moines, Iowa. So friends, I remember my dad today and I thank you for remembering him with me. And I also lift up that I believe my dad, like all of us, is a reflection of God in the image of God. That means God can work with inner tubes, metamucil bottles, paper and string. That means God can work with trailer home parsonages and some kind of imperfect ventriloquism. That means God can work with estranged people like Larry, do communion with garlic bread, work with off-pitch singers like Mark, and work with grieving and broken-hearted people like me. It's amazing. 
God works with these cracked vessels. God offers us images of the kingdom of heaven. And we fly. And we fly. And we fly. So we sing. Let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up to the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Let's all go fly a Right. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you.